All right. So good morning. Grace and peace with you all from Jesus. And uh, the saints at Spring say hello and give their greetings. Um, so I apologize, but I, if you could, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning we are in Jonah chapter 1. And if you have your Bible, um, please follow along. And uh, sorry, I'm going to think, who is this guy giving us the word? And he doesn't even know where Jonah is this morning. Um, where did it go? Okay, so sorry about this. There we go. Okay, so Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against, against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go to the, with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his god and he hurled the car and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them but Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep so the captain came and said to him what do you mean you sleeper arise call out to your god perhaps the god will give us thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come and let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, God, the God who made heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, 
for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, and they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, he, they called out to the Lord, and the Lord, O oh Lord, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as you, it pleased you. So it, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. And I'm going to have a secondary reading in Psalm 107. And this is And we will pick up that reading in verses 23. In verse 23, Psalm 107. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing the business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea, and they were mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths, and their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them into a desire, their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son Jesus Christ come, came in to visit in great humility that in the last day we shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the, both the quick and the dead we may rise to life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee, with the Holy Ghost, now and forever. Amen. So, in many ways, this sermon is a continuation of my sermon that I gave on Psalm 107. And I, as I was preparing for this, one of the things that I'm always struck by is the wildness and unsafe nature of our God. He's unsafe in ways that um, he does things that we don't expect him to do, nor 
um, sometimes particularly wish him to do, but he does things from the very essence of his goodness. And so I wanted to begin by reading a section from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I think captures the nature of this passage very well before we actually dig in to kind of orient our minds to who our God is. And so let us begin with that reading. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He is the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tammuz. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great empire beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I I thought that he was a man. Is he quite safe? Shall I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you... Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Those words, I think C.S. Lewis captured wonderfully our passage this morning. For indeed, we encounter a God who is both good and unsafe. He is unsafe in the ways that he leads us to himself. And he is unsafe in the ways that he, uh, he acts toward us. Just right before service, Mark and I were talking about how we are very keen on symmetries and uh, having our theological and scriptural understanding be that of a garden in Versailles that, that has very clean and cut, clean trims and very cut gardens, but the way of the Lord is more akin to an English garden with its wildness and its wild beauty that has an unusual unity and an unusual beauty, one that strikes us. And as we approach it this morning, this is something that we see very clearly, that God is indeed good, but not safe. And so, what I wanted to give you this morning as we contemplate Jonah together is what I think will be of most benefit to you. I prefer not to talk about the perplexities of a man being swallowed by a great fish or Jonah's parody on true piety or the Christological implications of the book but I would prefer that we contemplate together this morning God's interactions with the sailors. 
And so to that end, let us uh, pick up in verse 7 of chapter 1. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what of what people are you? The sailors, as we see, are like any one of us, any human that has come before us, past, present, and future. They are aware that this evil has come upon them because of someone's doing, someone's wrongdoing, someone's sin, if you will. That the judgment that is upon them, this great tempest that they find themselves in, has not come because of just randomness. It has come because someone has done evil. Indeed, all men and all women have been aware of a moral order from the beginning. And this kind of leads us to two questions, because I think if we read our Bibles, we read our scriptures flatly, we think, well, how could they know about a moral order of the universe? How could they, if they are ignorant of the laws of Moses, the laws given to Moses at Sinai? And I think there's something that we kind of recoil back from, on, on the other hand, that is these sailors' views some sort of primitive view of judgment, that judgment might actually come through a storm against them, and that judgment may fall upon them because of sin in, in the physical order, in the natural order of things that we see. And to turn to this, I, I think it's worth pointing out that, that uh, everyone has been aware of a moral order, and this is actually something that C.S. Lewis, just to pick up on Lewis once more, uh, argued very persuasively for in his book, Mere Christianity, that our very nature of how we act with one another bears testimony. And this is the very same thing that the sailors definitely saw. And it's something that we are very aware of today. Indeed, this is actually something that we're aware of in the very, um, in our very lives. Even Lewis points this out in saying that when we try to justify ourselves, we do so in a way that tries to appeal to the moral order that we know exists. I see this at work every day. That we don't just say, to hell with your standard. Those are Lewis's words, not mine. But I think, but we try to say, why does the standard not apply to us or why we are actually somehow meeting the standard? And the sailors, very much so, in asking their hurried questions, understood that someone had sinned, someone had broken the standard. And just to kind of hammer home this point of knowing the moral order, just as the sailors did, I will quote from Marcel Proust, a French author, and just actually in quite a marvelous, marvelously beautiful passage of his. And uh, I don't agree with this theology, nor do I think that he was a Christian but he understood this just as the sailors did. And so this is from Marcel Proust. 
All that we can say is that everything is arranged in this life as though it has, we entered it carrying a burden of obligations contracted in a former life. There is no reason inherent in the conditions of life on this earth that can make us consider ourselves obliged to do good, to be kind and thoughtful, even to be polite. All these obligations, which have no sanction in our present life, seem to belong to a different world, a world based on kindness, scrupulousness, self-sacrifice, a world entirely different from this one, one which we leave in order to be born on earth before perhaps returning there to live once again beneath the sway of those unknown laws which we obeyed because we bore their precepts in our hearts, not knowing whose hand have traced them there. And so these sailors bear, bore the precepts of the law on their hearts. And we know this more confidently from Scripture, as St. Paul reminds us that the law is written on the hearts of all, and our consciences bear witness to this. And the psalmist reminds us that the heavens declare God's righteousness, for he gives himself for he himself is judge. The heavens declare this. And so let's turn finally to, to their concept of judgment. Is their concept of judgment fundamentally wrong? And it's not. Judgment is indeed physical and spiritual. We have become accustomed to thinking that somehow God only punishes us if we are not in Christ in a spiritual way. But that is not true. It's not primitive either to think this, for indeed our Lord reminds us when the Tower of Siloam fell that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And indeed, all natural calamities to a certain extent, in some sense, are an expression of God's judgment after the fall. And even the final judgment will be physical. For our Lord also reminds us that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so now this kind of makes sense. Why these sailors are asking these hurried questions. Where are you from? Where are you coming from? What do you do? Who are you from? What evil have you cast upon us? And this, because it's actually a sensitivity to the moral order that God has created that wrongdoings deserve judgment. And so, in their case, this becomes a gift instead of a terror. For many of us, before we came to know Christ, before we repented, before we turned to him, this was a terror. But it was a terror that led us to life. And so in that way, it was a gift, and it was a gift for them in this way, too.
So let us continue in uh, picking up in verse 9. And he said to them, Jonah, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and the sea and said to and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it because of me that this it, that this great tempest has come upon you. So there's actually several, if you read this carefully, and it's worth going home if, if you don't pick this up in the sermon, which I hope you do, actually reading this passage very carefully. So there's actually kind of a funny thing is that Jonah announces that he says, I'm a Hebrew. And actually in the, in the Hebrew language, the way that he puts it in the, original, in, in the text is a Hebrew I am. He's announcing the very fact that he is a Hebrew. And I can't um, hardly read that without sensing a sense of a bit of ethnic pride there. And he says um, that he fears God and who made the sea and dry land. In ancient cultures, if a god made something, he had control of it. And there's a sense of irony that just put away for a second, um, tuck this away as we move on, that Jonah says that he fears God. But what is he not doing in this passage? He's not praying to the God who actually controls the seas and dry land, the one who has made it, the one who owns it. And so Jonah is actually doing the very opposite of someone that, something that you would expect someone who actually fears God to do. And ironically, these pagan sailors, as we've already covered, have a sense of this moral order. And ironically, they actually care more for each other and more for Jonah because they're calling out to their false gods. So Jonah has the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the one true God, the knowledge of the God most high, and yet he doesn't call out. And so he almost has this parody going on, and there's, almost, there's always a sense of funniness when we read the Bible. Sometimes we read the Bible in this very serious way, and we think that everything, that there's no humor in it. But there is a humor because here, Jonah is the one who knows the God above all gods, yet he doesn't pray. And so this situation is growing even more and more out of control, and and because you see that the men's fear is growing, because at first it just seemed like a, sor- a storm that they were just being judged for, and then suddenly they find out the storm is actually being caused by a prophet fleeing from the God who he's a prophet for. And so they're trying to figure out uh, what is going on, and this is somewhat of a frightful dilemma that uh, they're put in, because Jonah you know, they, they, Jonah says, well, okay, if you want to deal with this, if you want to get rid of the storm, the situation that you find yourself in, just throw me overboard. What a frightful dilemma that is. On one hand, they've already are sitting here and 
are being faced with the real possibility of being guilty for murder. This is why they ask themselves, why they ask that the innocent blood not be put on their hands. And on the other hand, if they disobey, if they disobey the prophet of God, then they're potentially disobeying the God that's already evidently mad, who sent this tempest upon them. And so this is hopefully something that we never find ourselves in. But what I think is so great is that they do exactly what we probably would do. They seek to plot a middle route. They seek to row back to shore and, um, and to, to do this. And so we'll see this in verse 13. So let's pick it up there. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not the innocent us on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased." So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. This is the middle route I was just speaking about. They sought themselves to, uh, they, they thought that they could go back to sea. And ironically, one of the things is that they're returning to dry land to return Jonah. And again, they demonstrate that, ironically, them being pagans are more sensitive to God's order and more compassionate than Jonah is. Jonah won't actually even pray but they try to go back to dry land to actually return Jonah. And so they don't like the idea of hurling him over and murdering him, essentially, in their mind, or disobeying God, but they are wanting to say, okay, let's, let's actually plot this middle route. And this is perfectly sensible to all of us in the room, because we all plot these middle routes. We think, oh, if we make this compromise here or we do this thing, that somehow um, we can have our cake and eat it too. And we think that with a bit of grit and determination, we can soldier on and win that crown of life. But this is not how God has ordained things for us. Indeed, this is not, it could not be ordained this way. Because God does as he pleases. And his will is not going to be thwarted by any man, nor will it be thwarted by any God. Because had those men returned Jonah to shore, they would think that God, their gods gave them favor and strength. But they're left with one option, which is to call out on the name of the Lord. And this is indeed the way that everybody comes to be saved, both physically and spiritually, is by calling on the name of the Lord. Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty, had to come this way the poorest paupers around the world come this way. I came this way, and presumably everybody that's here 
has went through this very means. They have called upon the Lord. And like, our, like the sailors, neither our gods nor our strength will save us. And like the sailors, neither our money nor our righteousness will save us. Only the Lord will save us. And only the Lord will deliver us. So as I've worked through this passage and talked to people about my findings as I develop the sermon, you run into a lot of skepticism. And maybe this is skepticism that you hold yourself. And you say, well, how do you know that the sailors were right with God? And it just wasn't some physical, temporal salvation. Maybe they went on and continued their idol worship after they got out of the situation. And I would just say, if you think that today, um, you're reading far more into the text than the text actually permits you to do so. But I think the evidence in the text is very convincing. And so if you first look, is that in 16 it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. This fear is not the sinful fear that we sometimes find in scriptures that drives us away from the Lord, but is the right fear, the fear that indeed Messiah should be characterized by, which we find in Isaiah 11, 1 through 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This kind of fear that we see in the sailors is not driving them away. That's almost what we see at the beginning um, because when they started to grow in fear, they start rowing back to shore to bring Jonah back and drop him off to make this thing go away. But they find that their only option is to call on the name of the Lord. And indeed, this fear is the right fear. It's not just merely a reverence of God. It is overwhelmed by his goodness and majesty and holiness, grace and righteousness by all that God is. And so then we may ask and observe, well, what else happened after they feared, called out and feared the Lord exceedingly? They had faith, their faith that actually resulted in works and repentance. And we see that they offered sacrifices and vows, which are marks of Old Testament piety. This is replete in the Psalms, but I think this is a really significant passage. shows this in Isaiah chapter 19. This is talking about Egypt. And the Lord made himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord on that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. So what you see is that Isaiah is looking into the future and talking about another people, the Egyptians, in that they will sacrifice to him and make vows. And what you see with the sailors is precisely the same thing. They're sacrificing and making vows, and it's even in that direction. And so what is meant to be drawn from here is that these sailors actually 
came to know the Lord of the universe. And so, if we tie this all together, we tie the discussion about the moral order and then being aware of that we tie that here Jonah fears the says he fears the Lord but doesn't do what you would expect him to do but then suddenly these men fear the Lord and it results in work works of righteousness according to Old Testament categories then you can see that the Lord not only saved them from their plight of the storm but also saved them eternally Now, you may ask, well, how can we have confidence that the Lord is gracious? Maybe this is a one-off. Maybe this is just something that happened. And I I, I always um, get a bit of heartache that people tend to think that God is only wrathful in the Old Testament and somehow loving and kind in the New. And when I actually read the Old Testament, I'm very comforted because I remember And you can remember Rahab, the prostitute, who the Lord delivered and saved. And we can remember the deliverance of Hezekiah, the wavering king. And we can remember the the thief on the cross who was but a breath away from death. And we can remember Paul, the persecutor of the faithful. For they all called upon the name of the Lord and he saved them and I very much look forward to meeting all these saints these friends that we've read about and we have very much to catch up with them uh, in heaven and we can take confidence that they will be there because we have the testimony of scripture. Now, you can ask, well, how do we know the Lord is still faithful today? That this isn't something that's just trapped in our Bibles and now we're on to a new phase. And I would encourage everyone first to repeat the ancient pattern, which is, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. Is what we find in Psalm 22, the prayer of Christ, that we remember Hezekiah and Rahab and Paul and the thief on the cross. But furthermore, our Lord said that it is finished on the cross, and he was raised for our justification. And he ascended into the heaven and lives to intercede for each one of you. And we can remember that our Lord Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now you may ask, what about if I've never called on the Lord? Or what if I've made a shipwreck? of my faith. And this is coming from a very personal place because um, I have made shipwreck of my faith in the past. And um, 
and, I, and there was a time that I hadn't called on the name of the Lord. And perhaps one of you have made shipwreck of your own faith. And what I would encourage you is that if you have or you never called, that you call and you call today for the first time or you call or you call today for the 10,000th time. The Lord will hear your call just as he did with the sailors and he will rescue you. And in fact, your faith will be characterized by you calling on him over and over again. And so even if you have called or you're calling for the 10,000th time, I encourage you to keep on calling because he wants you to call. This is the very God who came and became, took on flesh because he wanted to be with his creatures. This is the very God who camped out with the Israelites in the desert, in the tabernacle. This is the God that gives us scripture and wants us to know him. He's not just some unmoved mover. He is that. He is the beginning, is the cause of all creation and the foundation of reality. But he's a God who we can sing and pray to and dance before and call out to, for he cares for us. And finally, I imagine some of you are asking me in your heads, why are you telling me this? This is the same thing I learned in Sunday school. This is the same thing I learned when my neighbor gave me the gospel, and this is the reason why I'm here, because he drugged me here, and I accepted Jesus, and I know all about this forgiveness stuff. Why are you telling me this? This is the same thing I get when I listen to Pilgrim Radio. I know this. And I'm sure that some of you probably wanted me to tell you about perplexities of a man being swallowed by a great fish, or Jonah's parody of true piety, or the Christological implications of the book. And those are all worthy of discussion, but it was not for today. And I tell you this because you forget. I forget. We forget the unsafe, holy, good God who does not overlook our sin, but who's overflowing with love and loves to be gracious to his creatures to turn us in to something beautiful and to enjoy him forever. That's why I tell you this. And that was what was my burden of my heart this morning is to remind you of the God that we worship and serve. Because if you're lacking this love, you won't tell anyone. You don't have to hassle me much to tell people about 
the new gadget I have. But sometimes you have to hassle me quite a bit to tell people about this God. But when you know that God is good and upright and he leads sinners in the way and he's this unsafe, wild God, not a boring one, your hearts ignite with love and burn with the proper fear of the sailors. Amen. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for being unsafe yet good. A God who is wild and leads us in ways that we don't expect. But we thank you for above all for being good and sending your son in the form of a man who humbled himself to the cross and made a way for us to come to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would um, bless us as we leave today. We pray that we would come to love you more. We pray, Lord, that we would love you with a greater love and that as we come to sing this last praise that you would put it on our lips to praise you, that the prayers and meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, may I please have you stand for the last song.